Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 20th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Call News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today by video link, we've got uh, Debbie Evans and Vanessa Bailey. Um, so we're going to get straight on. We've got quite a bit to get through as usual. Uh, and we'll talk about, uh, well, the weather and uh, the Daily Mail's headline this morning. Well, yeah, I think this was yesterday. Uh, hottest day in history. Britain hits a record 40.2 degrees C. First time ever. Uh, in the 40s, and it's on track to soar to 43C uh, today. That's, of course, yesterday. In unprecedented heat as roads melt, and of course, the word melt has to be in capital letters, uh, schools shut and country grinds to a halt. Uh, also yesterday was the absolutely tragic news of uh, the uh, village in Essex that effectively, well, several houses burned as a result of uh, a, what they describe as a wildfire. Was it a wildfire? We'll come on to that in a second. But again, the mail with their inflammatory headlines, wildfires destroy houses in Essex on hottest day in history, blazes across south of England uh, as Britain hits a record 40.2 C while roads melt, again in capital letters, schools shut and country grinds to a halt. Um, well, what happened with the, the homes? Uh, and I say, you know, I don't want to understate how tragic this is for the people involved. Uh, the Daily Mirror had this. Uh, man claims Wennington fire started when compost heap spontaneously combusted. Uh, and uh, of course, the suggestion in the article, the article doesn't go on to explain uh, the fact that compost heaps uh, do overheat, uh, particularly in hot weather, and they can uh, spontaneously combust. So the implication uh, was that this was something unusual, but it's not. It has been uh, discussed on many websites to do with gardening over many years. Uh, my compost is too hot what to do about overheated compost piles and so on. And they say that uh, a rare combination of events can cause a compost pile to catch fire. These, must, these all must be met for the, uh, before the occasion arises. Uh, and although they make the point that this, uh, if it happens at all, most often happens in commercial composting operations with larger scale compost heaps. Uh, I think if people have a look on YouTube, you will see many uh, sort of garden uh, situations where uh, smaller domestic compost heaps have also caught fire. So it's not that unusual. And uh, there are uh, many people uh, on the, and in fact, here is uh, Cambridgeshire Fire and Rescue Service top, talking about exactly that. Uh, there's lots of advice on the internet about how to avoid that from happening. So pretty tragic uh, situation there, but nonetheless being absolutely amplified in the mainstream press. Um, so uh, here's the Mail article again. Uh, this is how it was yesterday. Wildfires destroy houses in Essex on hottest day in history. We've already seen this. Uh, the same URL, however, was changed. And today uh, we get a different story or a potentially different story. Police say wildfire, wildfires that tore through UK on hottest day ever may have been arson. Uh, and I think, uh, uh, Debbie and Vanessa, that is a much more likely uh, scenario, particularly when we've seen so much uh, extinction rebellion protest uh, on the streets over the last uh, Extinction Rebellion type protest on the streets over the last several months. Um, the question is, uh, I'll come to you, Debbie, first. Do you think uh, people would be prepared to take things into their own hands in this way uh, to generate the headlines? Um, well, Mike, the first thing that comes to, to my mind when I see all of this and my 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 thoughts and, and and my heart goes out to everybody that's that's lost their home um i mean you know we we that's absolutely tragic but the first thing that strikes me is build back better burn down first um 
And I've noticed that they're blaming uh, barbecues now. Uh, they're blaming smokers. You know, soon people won't be able to smoke outside. No barbecues will be allowed. You can see the way that this is going to roll out. Um, and of course, after the heat wave comes rain. Uh, well, indeed. Uh, Vanessa, you're in Damascus. Uh, what are the temperatures like there at the moment? <laughs> well, I mean, I was just saying to Debbie, I mean, July, August here, we're always um, in the high 30s, mid 40s, especially in August. I remember being in Aleppo in 2017. In August, it was 48 degrees. And remembering that here we don't have electricity. I know I keep hammering this home, but we don't have air conditioning. Uh, it's sweltering. And this year, actually, it's a very humid heat, even in Damascus, which is unusual. So it's very oppressive. But, you know, I mean, people are not, people are not staying at home. They're just living their life as normal. This is a normal part of the seasonal cycle here. There isn't anything extraordinary to it. Indeed. Well, so let's look at the mail again this morning then. Um, and uh, the headline this morning then is after the inferno. So again, it, it's all very inflammatory. Uh, so, well, excuse the pun. But now, uh, then, of course, on I think it was uh, Monday's program or Friday's program, we made the point that people had been tweeting out uh, the situation with respect to the Met, the Met Office uh, and the graphics that the Met Office uses, how those graphics have changed. Um, so this was uh, James Melville on Twitter saying, UK heat, ma uh, heat wave maps past and present, past cheery sunshine graphics, present scorched earth. Um, and uh, well, this generated quite a bit of response. Um, so here is uh, uh, Aidan McGivern um, who tweeted out saying, I've seen this ridiculous comparison a lot on social media during the last few days. I created the Met Office temperature color scale with the help from a colleague. Uh, this is why I know, and he made two points, the image on the right is doctored and Met Office graphics are not designed to cause fear. Well, uh, he then subsequently went on to, to tweet some more, a bit of a, th a thread on this, which we'll come on to in a second. But the, what he didn't answer, as you'll notice uh, on, in the course of this uh, Twitter topic, uh, is that uh, he didn't explain why there needed to be a uh, color scale at all. So let's uh, put this back on. Uh, screen. And this is what he had to say. Um, how do I know that it's doctored? Uh, we had a graphics redesign earlier this year. We changed the map view, temperature symbols and color scale, etc. This image uses the old map view, the old symbols, but not the uh, old temperature colors. Uh, here's how we, uh, sorry, here's how the old scale looked at 30 to 34 degrees. Uh, and he said, even when record uh, breaking heat was predicted in the past, we had oranges and reds on the maps and nothing resembling the image in the first post. This is from the forecast ahead of the record breaking temperature in 2019. Um, and uh, then he went on to say, unfortunately, the old scale, which used a mixture of blues, greens, oranges, reds, wasn't acceptable to people, or wasn't accessible to people like me who are colorblind. So we changed the temperature colors to make the maps easier for people who are colorblind like me. That's it, no conspiracy. Um, so uh, Vanessa, I just uh, wonder if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, do you buy the, it was all for the colorblind narrative? No, <laughs> because I mean, surely he knows what the weather is doing, right? He's, he's in charge of reporting it. Uh, 
how much of his audience are colorblind? I mean, it's it's the most ridiculous. Seriously, they're digging deep at the moment to, to justify what they're doing. <laughs> well, indeed. So let's just bring this on because this is a forecast. This is the forecast from Tuesday this week from the Met Office. And we can see the colors absolutely clearly and how deep red and blood red they are. Uh, and the point that we were making on Friday, or rather the point that uh, the original uh, the originator of the tweet we showed at the beginning of this was making. This isn't just the UK doing this. Uh, this is other countries as well. So he was making the point about Germany as well. So uh, the question then is, uh, was, was this just uh, a decision by the Met Office? Or in fact, is this uh, more about the so-called uh, common narrative uh, that Theresa May, the idea of a common narrative that Theresa May sold to the G7? So all the G7 countries effectively attempting to pursue a common narrative. So let's uh, bring The Guardian on screen then. Um, and uh, well, we'll have more, much more on this in uh, extra this afternoon because Debbie has a little bit more on this. But The Guardian's headline yesterday from Ella Gilbert, it's an opinion piece. Uh, yes, Britain had a heat wave in 1976. No, it was nothing like the crisis we're in now. So uh, here's what she had to say. Conservative MP John Hayes slammed those taking precautions against the heat wave here in the UK as snowflakes and cards. Uh, this is ridiculous. The kind of temperatures we're currently experiencing are nothing to be complacent or derisive about. Uh, extreme heat kills. For example, the deadly European heat wave of 2003 uh, cost 70,000 lives across the continent, more than 2,000 in England and hit the most vulnerable in society the hardest. The heat was so crippling in France that mortuaries ran out of space to store the bodies of those killed by the extreme temperatures. Tragically, this heat wave may follow suit, according to a former government chief scientific advisor, Sir David King, uh, who has predicted there could be up to 10,000 excess deaths associated with this heat wave. And I just f find this utterly hilarious, this whole narrative, because let's just put the latest Office for National Statistics uh, data on screen showing uh, all-cause mortality. And again, we have m more than 10,000 excess deaths uh, in this right-hand side since, I guess, May or so. Uh, in the last eight, eight to 10 weeks, we've had excess mortality in the UK. It's not being discussed. It's not being explained. Uh, nobody seems to really care about it. And it very much looks, Debbie, to me, as if excess mortality only counts if it's the right kind of excess mortality. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's the, that's the question, isn't it? That's the 64,000 question. What is the criteria now? What is excess mortality? This data is all completely skewed. We can't believe any of the data that's coming from pretty much any government source anymore. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say. I'm completely breathless with it. And, you know, going going back to these heat waves and and what everything that's coming out this is desperation surely i mean this has got desperation written all over it so we're being lied to yes vanessa well there was a headline i think it uh i can't remember where it was maybe the guardian also talking about the increase in i mean i'm not laughing i'm not laughing at the very real suffering of people but the reason for that suffering is what is being completely covered up here because the headline was talking about the potential for excess blood clots and blood clot uh, cases as a result of the extreme heat right so for me immediately the first thing that came in my head well this is a cover-up 
for the number of uh, vaccine adverse reactions. This is just another way of, of covering up what they have created, the yes. excess mortalities that they've created. So here they are trying to bring in a smokescreen, um, literally, and trying to bring in a cover-up story to try and excuse the potential for excess deaths that are going to be down to their enforced vaccine policy. Uh, I mean, not, it's actually disgusting. Yes, and it's not just the enforced <laughs> vaccine policy, it's, it's the complete shutdown of primary health care as well. So let's bring uh, Ella back on screen again. Uh, and uh, well, she ended her article saying, the only way to avoid these sorts of extreme events becoming the norm is to level up the ambition of our climate policies and deliver on our existing pledges. So much as it may be tempting, uh, 1976 isn't an excuse to dismiss this week's heat wave as another natural event. Uh, there's no hiding from the truth. We're changing our climate. We've got to do more about it. So what she's really saying is here, we've got to stop being productive. We've got to shut down uh, our uh, mechanisms for earning a living. Uh, and this is echoed then uh, in The Guardian again, and another opinion piece, which is headlined, we've reached boiling point. Nobody should have to work in temperatures above 30 degrees. Uh, and yet, uh, Vanessa, this is what people do all over the world. Um, and uh, they don't seem to be, uh, well, there is the old adage, uh, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Other countries have found ways to deal with the midday temperatures, but still they don't shut down their economies in order to deal with hot weather. Yeah, but what is also extraordinary, I didn't see any mention of the cause of whatever climate change we're having. And the primary uh, cause is the military industrial complex and all the wars that we are waging. And not one of these criminal so-called journalists ever mentions that. It's all down to, to cattle methane or, or some other ridiculous idea it, <laughs> to, again deprive us of something else you know while while the military industrial complex rolls on destroying the planet in its wake yes. i mean it's just quite it's it's oh the hypocrisy is just off the scale yes well look we're going to end on a, on a humorous note then and i'm very interested to get your your comments on this because here's uh euro news travel website and the heat wave uh, the headline is heat wave flight delays leave passengers passing out in boiling hot queues uh, in the uh, in the airports because there's no air conditioning there. But look, are they are they passing out because they're in boiling hot queues, or are they passing out because they're wearing masks? That's that's one point to make. But uh, I just wanted to. Uh, well, this sentence jumped out at me, and they said as people look to escape the heat by flying abroad, uh, ongoing airport chaos left some travellers suffering from suffering from the heat while waiting for their flights. So, Debbie, is it a traditional thing for people to uh, head off abroad in order to escape the heat? Well, do you know, this was going to be my next point. Isn't it the, the reason that people want to escape because they want to go to a country with heat? They, they want to go somewhere where it's going to be warm and they can sunbathe. And it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. No sense. No. Uh, and uh, we're being trained to believe in no sense, it seems, on an increasing basis. So let's come on to some more no sense. And, uh, well, the BBC uh, documentary, Unvaccinated, Debbie. Yeah, that's going to be broadcast tonight uh, at nine o'clock. Very interesting. Uh, Professor Hannah Fry 
And if people might remember, um, she did the documentary on the BBC Contagion, uh, which went out about the same time as this whole pandemic started. So here she is tonight doing a Big Brother type of experiment where she's uh, taken seven people to see if she can convince them if any, um, if any of them would now take the vaccine. So it's going to be a very interesting documentary. As I say, nine o'clock tonight on BBC Two. I shall be um, watching for sure. And uh, I, I don't know if anybody actually gave in. I have a suspicion that nobody did, but it'd be interesting to see. Um, yes. So, sorry, Mike, go on. No, go, go ahead, Debbie, go ahead. Um, no, so really, on a, on a vaccine note, I just wanted to highlight something that we found, or at least I found and I read, which concerned me. And this is a House of Commons Committee of Public Accounts document. You can see it on your screen there. It was only published on June the 4th, but on page 14 stroke 15, because it, it covers two pages, you'll note there that there seems to be an intention of rolling out um, a vaccine to the five to 11 year olds this autumn. It says the next stage, and this alerted me because it also would appear that the COVID-19 vaccine has been um, kind of put on the, immune, the immunization schedule without anybody really realizing or being aware. Um, and the other thing in this document that I wanted to highlight as well is that it would appear that the unvaccinated and pregnant women are also going to be targeted. And where you can see now on your screen, um, on the left-hand side, um, it says nearly 3 million adults in England remain unvaccinated and are therefore at greater risk of being hospitalised or dying because of COVID-19 than if they were vaccinated. Well, I've got no evidence. I, I would love to see the evidence for that. I suggest people just freeze the screen and read it or go back to the original document and have a look because it very much shows what we could be looking at coming up in the autumn. In the right-hand box, you'll see there that they're talking about there being a low uptake of the vaccine within pregnant women. I, for one, am absolutely delighted with that. And I think every pregnant woman out there that's maybe thinking of um, having a vaccine should be very relieved and know that there are plenty of other people not taking it up, so they're not alone. So anyway, with all of this, with all of this said, I thought, right, let's go back to the board meetings because you know how I love a good board meeting. And this time, I thought we'd go and look at the NHS board meeting. Now, this is very interesting. I would urge everybody to go and have a look at these board meetings because they're so revealing. This particular board meeting was published on the 7th of July. Now, this is the first NHS integrated board meeting. So it's where NHS X have disappeared and now become NHS digital, etc. So I thought, um, viewers might be interested to go and look at that because honestly the whole board meeting is extremely revealing and i know we're going to show a little bit of it uh, a little bit of it in a minute but um please go and sign up go and look at the board meetings they're incredibly incredibly revealing um i think we might have a clip next if it's possible just to show stephen powis in this board meeting on the 7th of july he gives a hint of where we're coming for the future. So hopefully if we can run this video and uh, listen carefully. Um, the looking further ahead, uh, I, I don't see and my colleagues in UXA don't see any particular new variant that's coming through next, although there are many variants uh, that they are keeping an eye on. 
so once we get through this wave, uh, we will um, have to see uh, how we fare in August and September. But we are expecting as we go into the winter, uh, and of course there could be new variants that come along before, but we are expecting as we get into the winter months that we will see increasing pressure through COVID again. And as Amanda said uh, earlier, we're also expecting to see flu this year. We haven't seen significant um, incidents of flu in the last two winters. We're keeping a very close eye on Australia where there's been a um, perhaps more severe than usual and perhaps more uh, earlier than usual um, uh, flu season uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, and so uh, that can be a signal for the Northern Hemisphere, but I think irrespective of that, we would be very concerned about flu coming back this winter. Uh, and so we are taking that into account in our planning for winter, as we will hear in a minute. Uh, uh, Amanda's also uh, mentioned the uh, vaccine programme, in particular the COVID vaccine programme, but of course we also have the flu vaccine programme, which uh, begins in September each year. And, and they are going to be really important this year, as important as ever, even perhaps even more so, in ensuring that we protect uh, members of the public, that we keep demand down uh, on hospital pressures. So if there's one message uh, for the public, it's uh, don't take the foot off the pedal in terms of uh, enthusiasm for vaccination, both for flu and for COVID. And if you are in the eligible groups as determined by JCVI for either the COVID vaccine or the flu vaccine uh, this autumn, then make sure that you go and get it. It will protect you, it will protect your families, uh, particularly from severe illness, uh, but it will also help the NHS uh, in taking pressure off the hospitals and therefore allowing us to do the work that we do for all patients with all conditions. Well, there you, there you have it. I mean, where do we start on that? Uh, flu, uh, they're very worried about. Australia, he's very worried about. And let's bear in mind that Stephen Powis is the NHS um, medical director. So clearly he's saying, don't take your foot off the pedal. And, and what we can see driving forward clearly is an autumnal vaccination campaign, a big drive. But let's, let's think about what did he say there? He mentioned Australia and uh, we know from past, the past two years, we seem to have been following Australia very closely. So I thought I'd go and have a look and see. And there we go. Australia are saying that they've got very high cases and numbers of flu. Um, but this flu jabs come, uh, this, this flu epidemic, um, as they're calling it, has come early. So not only have they got rising COVID numbers, but they've got rising flu numbers. If we just hop to the next um, slide, we can look at, well, what actually are they worrying about? Oh, here we go. It's flu again because we haven't had it for two years and it's been on holiday. I mean, we haven't seen it, but now it's coming back. So Australia are on red alert and we're obviously watching it very carefully. So then I thought, well, I'd go and have a look at the, the flu schedules and see what's going on and see what's happening with regards to Australia and the effect it's gonna have on our NHS. And bingo, all of a sudden, Australia seems to be impacting the NHS, but clearly Stephen Powers said, you know, this is a different hemisphere. So why are we frightening people that we could get flu from Australia when Australia are actually, they've been one of the most locked down countries. So. It's, it's a bleak future, I think, that we're looking for in the NHS this winter, and we're all going to be invited for flu jabs and for COVID jabs. But 
you know, let's look at the children here. Let's go back to the five to 11 year olds. And just recently UNICEF have, um, and you can see, uh, you'll be able to see on, on your screen now, is UNICEF have um, issued a red alert because they're worried that children have missed vaccines in the lockdowns. And of course, this is a story in the UK as well, how convenient, um, in that parents haven't been able to take their children to the health visitor or to the doctor for immunisation. So, oh dear, we need to look at pumping up the um, vaccination uh, drive in the UK. So, as I say, then I went and looked at the flu um, schedule and the flu schedule for children has been released on the 12th of July, 2022. You can see it there on your screen. Um, and it's, it's obviously going to be a drive to invite children to have a flu vaccine. Now I'm told by an amazing pediatrician who I've had the privilege of speaking to just yesterday, that flu jabs in school children have been rolled out for the last couple of years. I wasn't aware of that, to be honest, but. The problem is, is that we don't know what this jab is going to be. We don't know whether it's going to be a new one, whether it's going to be an mRNA, whether it's going to be a Tetra, a quad. Um, uh, we've got no idea. So I would urge caution at the moment because, you know, they're, they're talking about what benefits uh, these flu jabs have on, on children. When the vaccine's going to be given, for example, which children should have it. And you'll see the eligibility there is two to three years. So we're talking young children and we're talking children that may be having a combination of COVID vaccines and possibly flu vaccines. And we know that children are at very low risk. They don't need a COVID vaccine. It's that simple. They don't need one. So it alarmed me a little bit um, in the NHS board meeting when Ruth May, uh, the chief nurse, um, who I haven't got a lot of time for, to be honest, but when the chief nurse in the board meeting spoke up and I wonder if, and I know this is the um, text from YouTube, so it might, it might sound a bit disjointed, but during the board meeting, I've taken some screenshots of what she actually said, Mike, would you mind reading them out for me? Because it's a little yeah. bit small for me. Yeah, so she said, uh, I didn't want to forget children in all of this. Uh, so we've seen children and young people's attendances and admissions increase recently. Uh, so together with Simon Kenny, uh, we've restarted the work uh, that we did uh, like this time last year in readiness to support children uh, and their admissions. So where where this is where, very concerning. Well, where is why, all this why pressure are we on having children? a rise in admissions? Yes. Sorry, Mike. I mean, this is summer. <laughs> this this is summertime. Why are we having a rise in children's admissions? Why is she warning of that? You know, this is extremely concerning. So I think my big message to end this segment is to all parents, you have to make your own risk assessment. Do you really believe your child needs this particular vaccine at this particular time, especially if your child is otherwise healthy? So be vigilant. We need to keep our ears to the ground and our eyes, eyes on because I think this is what could be coming for the autumn. Yes, okay, brilliant. Thank you for that, Debbie. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to, uh, to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, but please do uh, share any of the material that you see on various platforms. Now, let's uh, move quickly on to inflation. And of course, the new inflation figures are out. 
uh, and it's not looking good. So uh, inflation up to uh, CPI, at least up to 9.4%. Uh, CPI-H, which includes uh, your cost of uh, home, uh, is 8.2%. Um, and uh, well, we got uh, some stuff from the uh, Office for National Statistics to uh, reinforce this. Uh, they said the cost of both raw materials and goods leaving factories continue to rise, driven by higher metal and food prices, respectively. Uh, they said these increases saw raw materials post their highest annual increase on record with manufactured goods at a 45-year high. Um, now, with respect to house prices and that bubble, uh, they said that annual house price inflation edged up again with the strongest rises seen in Wales. London again saw the lowest increase, though prices um, are, there are continuing to accelerate. Uh, but perhaps more concerning is that rents continue to grow across the country with the East Midlands seeing the biggest rises. London was again lowest, uh, though its rate of increase continues to climb. Now, I don't know what the rental situation is in other major cities, but in Plymouth, uh, it is a disaster for people. And we're seeing more and more uh, landlords getting out of the rental market. So they're putting their houses on the market and people are being uh, thrown out of their homes at this point. Uh, and there's no uh, rental uh, property available for them uh, to take up the, the difference. Um, so uh, then let's have a look at what the situation is between inflation and pay. Uh, and so the uh, red line is the uh, inflation line and the blue lines are total pay and regular pay uh, rates. And as you can see, the, the uh, gap between those uh, just increases to unbelievable rates. And as a result, we're seeing more and more people balloting for uh, strike action. So the uh, Royal Mail postmen have uh, just uh, balloted and I think they had a 97% uh, in favour of strike action. I think they have to give the Royal Mail uh, four weeks or so notice. So there will be strikes there. Uh, strikes uh, taking place over the summer everywhere as a result of this. But we don't need to worry because riding to the rescue is Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England. He says there's no ifs or buts in our commitment to the 2% inflation target. Uh, that's our job and that's what we'll do. I'm not clear that he's actually specified what his job is or what they're going to do in that little quote. Uh, but uh, the other person who's going to ride to the rescue, of course, is Anton LaVey, otherwise known as Nadim Zahawi, the current Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he was uh, giving his first, uh, perhaps his only, but certainly his first Mansion House speech uh, at the residence of the Lord Mayor of London, of the City of London yesterday. Uh, and so uh, we should all take uh, great uh, encouragement from what he had to say. Tonight, he said, I want to speak about the global fight against inflation. This summer, my focus will be on providing stability, reassurance and continuity. Uh, he said, uh, I saw as vaccines minister the incredible importance of that close relationship between government and regulators. And Debbie, I put that little quote in especially for you because he was very, very keen to see closer and closer relationships between government and regulators not just, I mean, he's talking about as vaccines minister because of this close relationship between the government and the MHRA, but increasingly the close relationship between the government and the financial regulators, as we'll see in a second. Uh, so Andrew Bailey and I are coordinating closely, he said, with the Independent Bank of England acting to control inflation and government keeping close control of the public finances, uh, supporting households and easing the supply side. They're keeping control of the public finances by spending more and more money and uh, uh, borrowing more and more printed money. But anyway, we'll come on to that a bit more. Uh, and my Lord Mayor, he said, central to our, all our plans is a financial and professional services sector that is thriving. 
Uh, in my lifetime, there has probably never been a more important moment for government to listen to and partner with you, a partnership I'm personally committed to. So he is personally committed to this new partnership with the City of London, between the government and the City of London, because that is the only uh, area that is uh, important to him, nothing else. Um, I think this is quite an incredible uh, situation as we move into a new, the new normal, which uh, where financial services are really the only thing that, that counts. Uh, Debbie. Oh, Mike, I can't resist. I just thank you so much for putting that, that little clip in, especially for me. I really do appreciate it because <laughs> he's even got that wrong. Nadim Zahawi, he's talking about the, a regulator. We don't have a regulator. The MHRA have themselves said that they're not a regulator. They're an enabler. Uh, from where I'm sitting, they are a pharmaceutical representative. Um, so he couldn't even get that right. Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, thanks for that. Now, uh, Vanessa, let's come on to uh, to uh, Middle East and, and war and so on. Um, but uh, Iran has been the focus in the last couple of days, particularly because uh, Vladimir Putin has uh, been there to visit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth pointing out before we play um, President Putin's summary of um, what they agreed on regarding Syria, that uh, Russia's Gazprom signed a 40 billion investment deal on state petroleum com companies of Iran. So um, clearly, you know, this, this meeting has huge impact on not only the Middle East, uh, predominantly Syria, of course, but also on Ukraine, Europe, etc. But let's have a listen. No, well, sorry, I, sorry I, Vanessa, just before, we, yeah. just before we listen to this, I, just, I did want to ask you about this mm. because, because this seems massively significant to me. This deal mm. will mean uh, this is this is effectively a deal over gas with Iran uh, as a deal that didn't mm. exist before. And it's happening yeah. at the same time that uh, the uh, Nord Stream 1 pipeline is still undergoing maintenance. And there's still some suspicion about whether uh, Putin is going to switch that back on again. So for Germany, uh, mm. this is a potentially a massive uh, shift. And, and my question, I don't know whether you know the answer to this, but my question was, has this deal been signed to increase the pressure on Europe or do you think that there's actually a move away from Europe in this? No, I think there's a deliberate, I was listening to the interview by George Ellison with Dmitry Polyansky uh, last night, the, the, U, the special UN representative or the deputy um, in uh, New York. And it was interesting what he was saying that Russia is quite cold-blooded in its economic um, vision. You know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't have any issue with pivoting <laughs> to the East if, if the West is not going to, to play ball, basically. So for me, I think the message that I read in that was, you know, they'll come back to the EU if the EU starts behaving sensibly. Um, but in the meantime, they will look for alternative markets. And when the EU comes back cap in hand, it might be too late. You know, but that but I don't know what the EU expects. I don't know what they expect. If they're gonna commit Harakiri by following US policy, then they can't expect Russia to kind of sit there in the wings twiddling its thumbs <laughs> um until it sees sense. You know, yes. I mean this is this is real politics. So I think for sure Russia is um, building alliances 
that it already had, but now it's reinforcing them, reinforcing them, strengthening them to provide itself with a secure future. And the thing is, you know, the West always complains about the actions that countries take to counter Western economic and military aggression. Yes. <laughs> There's that. Yes, I completely agree. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's come on to Putin's, uh, Putin's summary then. I would begin not by recounting differences, but by describing what we have in common and what makes this format possible. We all believe that we need to guarantee the territorial integrity of the Syrian Arab Republic and to get rid of the terrorists of various kinds. This is key. Other thing is that humanitarian assistance to Syria is ongoing because the sanctions currently introduced against Syria and the Syrian people are leading to serious results. 90% of people are living beyond the line of poverty. Third, there are different approaches to humanitarian aid. We proceeded from the idea that it should be organized in such a way that it conforms to international humanitarian law. This means that all humanitarian aid needs to be channeled through the official Syrian government. We all believe that uh, the United States need to leave the territory. They need to stop plundering the Syrian people, carrying oil out uh, illegally. And there are some proposals on how to stabilize the situation in the region. We know that uh, the Russian, Turkish observers are working and uh, we think that in order to ensure a long-term stabilization we need to give all this territory over to the official government in Damascus and the armed forces of the Syrian Arab Republic then we will be able to have a dialogue with those in charge with the official government and that will be a serious stabilizing factor. So, I mean, yeah, what is extraordinary in what he says, had the West said this from day one, there would not have been this 11 year war and devastation in Syria. He's speaking complete sense, right? He's talking about effectively Giving, uh, maintaining Syrians, Syria's territorial integrity, enabling Syria to reclaim territory that has been occupied by effectively the US coalition and Turkish proxies, both in the Northwest and in the Northeast. And then what he's saying, then you can come to the negotiation table. So for the Kurdish separatists, for the various Syrian uh, armed groups, then once that is established, once uh, Syrian Arab army uh, control is established, once all of territory is back under the control of the legitimate government, then people can come to the negotiating table. It, it's so simple, it's so logical, right? But, but who keeps preventing this? The West, just as they do in Ukraine. If they had enabled discussions, if they had uh, honored the Minsk agreement, we wouldn't be where we are now in Ukraine. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's so blindingly 
logical, but what he very clearly laid out, and I've not seen him quite as bullish about the fact that the Syrian Arab army should take control of all Syrian territory. This is, this is a very important point, and that humanitarian aid essentially should come only through the Syrian government and be distributed throughout Syria. And of course, what will that do? That will bring down the sanction regime. But there are cracks appearing, which I'll show at the end of this report. Um, in my view, this trilateral meeting was about bringing Erdogan into line, bringing him under pressure, putting him in the corner and forcing him with elections coming up in 2023 to behave, right? Because what does uh, Khomeini say? Khomeini, sorry. Um, a military attack, this is a very clear warning to me. Military attack, meaning Turkey, and Turkey is still posturing even today about leading a military campaign against what he considers the, the PKK. Of course, they're the Kurdish Contras controlled by Israel and the United States predominantly, but the UK is also in on it. Um, so he says a military attack on northern Syria would be harmful to Syria harmful to Turkey. Now, in that is, is a veiled threat, in, in my opinion. What he's saying is, if you attack Syria, you're attacking Iran and Russia as well, and harmful to the region. And it would be to the benefit of the terrorists. He's making it quite clear. Any further destabilization is only going to benefit the, the US proxies, including, of course, ISIS. It would not bring about the political move Turkey expects from the Syrian government either. Now, this is a bit obscure, but what certain people have said to me, they believe it to mean Erdogan is reliant on being able to, to let go at least one million of the Syrian refugees, allowing them to come back into Syria pre-election because the refugee crisis, five million Syrian refugees estimated in Turkey is a big problem. It's an election uh, downfall or, or win if, if he can control it. So I think, or we think, what he's talking about here is the President Assad, the, the Syrian government, is not going to play ball if Turkey is not going to play ball. So they're kind of showing their hand. They're saying, okay, if you, if, if you continue on this path, you're going to meet a number of obstacles. Now, what I love about this video is how the West is trying to portray it as some kind of snub to Putin. But actually, if you actually look at the video, what it looks like to me, Putin is left waiting for, for Erdogan for some time. I absolutely love Putin's expressions. He's incapable of hiding um, how he's feeling or what he's thinking at this stage. Um, and when Erdogan comes in, he sort of bumbles in. I don't think this is anything to do with a snub on Erdogan's part. I think he's genuinely worried about what's going to be said to him. And potentially he delayed the meeting for that reason. Or, as someone pointed out on Twitter, he's uh, the, Joe the Joe Biden of Turkey. In other words, he's not quite sure where he's supposed to be going. He, he <laughs> does have failing health. Um, and that's quite well reported in Turkey and outside. So he finally kind of wanders in. <laughs> and one does wonder whether he went into the wrong room and, and had to be redirected, sort of Biden style. But anyway, what, what sort of made me laugh was how the West immediately jumped on it to, to say, oh, well, you know, here's uh, Erdogan snubbing um, 
uh, Putin, and you mentioned that, was it The Guardian that said it was um, Erdogan getting his own back for Putin's uh, snub uh, a couple of years ago? Yeah, that was a meal. Yeah, sorry, uh, Mel. Yeah. I always assume it's The Guardian because <laughs> they usually put out this kind of nonsense. So um, how does Erdogan react? Well, I find this, this kind of typical of a deluded megalomaniac, okay? So he's been issued with a very clear warning. So what does he do? He comes out basically um, sticking to his story that he vows to move forward with the Syrian operation despite objections in Iran and Russia. And he demands that Russia and Iran back him in his Syria campaign, which, of course, they are not going to, right? One thing that did cross my mind is potentially they're, they're using this as a prod for, for the Kurdish separatists to move back to the 30-kilometer line that they were supposed to have done in 2019 and that they failed to do um, and to hand over to uh, the Syrian Arab army in those areas. Now, a friend of mine, Ibrahim Mohamed Wadi, who's a, a former Syrian army soldier and researcher now, um, he did this map for me today. Um, what this shows very clearly, um, if you look over to the left, you don't see it initially, but the blue patch, that is all Al-Qaeda or Hayat. Uh, Tari al-Sham, as of course they've been rebranded. The purple um, are the Turkish-backed uh, groups, so predominantly Free Syrian Army, Muslim Brotherhood groups. So what that clearly shows is the isolation of Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, right? You can see very clearly they don't have the territory on the border with Turkey. And that has gradually been happening with the fights that I mentioned between the Turkish-backed militia and very much the U.S. But remember the, the kind of the whitewashing of Abu Muhammad al-Jolani by PBS and the interview by Martin Smith. And they dressed him up and they cleaned his beard and they put him in a suit and presented him as the legitimate opposition. Right. But if we look at that, politically speaking, Turkey has control of the border area and also the areas surrounding um, Aleppo to the north of Aleppo. Um, the Kurdish Contras, you can see, have control of uh, a, an area of the country the size of Denmark, actually, to give you some indication. If uh, the Kurdish Contras move back to the agreed 30-kilometer demarcation line, Syria will regain, I think it's 8,000 square kilometers of territory. So that gives you an idea of how important this move is and how... Uh, I believe Russia and Iran are, are maneuvering to achieve this and also to, to kind of um, prevent the Turkish incursion. Um, the dotted red line, if you can see that, shows the travel of the Syrian Arab army reinforcements. Now, this includes heavy artillery. Um, it includes uh, a number of soldiers. There, there were very few soldiers actually guarding the areas that are marked in red in the sort of in the midst of the Kurdish and American, co the, the U.S. coalition areas. So this uh, reinforcement campaign started before the trilateral meeting. So many people are kind of saying to me, well, why isn't Syria involved in this uh, meeting in uh, Tehran? My answer always is Russia will not discuss anything 
in Tehran or anywhere else without first um, getting the approval from Damascus. And the fact that um, this reinforcement campaign was starting before the trilateral meeting shows to me, and even before that, there, there were um, increased collaboration between Russia and Syria um, striking at ISIS in what you see as the yellow area, the desert area, to the west and the east of the Euphrates. Okay, and that, uh, that takes us then to this. Uh, Baghdad arrives in Tehran to discuss bilateral relations. Yeah, well, I mean, this is quite interesting. It's coming back to this idea that Russia and, and Iran are discussing Syria without Syria being present. Um, Faisal Mcdad, the foreign minister, arrived actually the same day that the trilateral meeting started to start his own bilateral meeting. So I'm quite sure that whatever is discussed by the three leaders will be passed to, to Mcdad. As I said, um, Putin certainly, you know, none of these countries are going to act without um, discussion and negotiation with Damascus. Now, meanwhile, um, this was yesterday, this report from the Syrian Arab News Agency. Um, America, as it does almost every day of the week, was transporting 40 vehicles, uh, an oil convoy, out of uh, Syria into Iraq. And these convoys, which are basically um, controlled by the Kurdish Contras, are given protection by the United States. So air protection, but also they accompany the convoy with armored vehicles. Much of that oil, of course, will end up in Israel. The belligerents um, against, uh, sorry, Qasad, Q QSD is Qasad, that's the uh, Syrian uh, name for the Kurdish uh, separatists. Um, and the belligerents against them and against the US occupation has certainly been increasing in the last few months, both to the north of Aleppo and to east of the Euphrates. Um, <clears throat> and if we move on, there's just a very quick video showing a couple of uh, comments from uh, civ Syrian civilians in Manbij. Uh, so to Manbij, Manbij is to the west of the Euphrates, um, and show just a small amount of the footage. You can cut it quite quickly once it shows, because it's all a bit the same, um, of the Syrian Arab army reinforcements arriving. نحن أنا صالح العلي من منبج احنا الحمد لله فخورين ومبسوطين بدخول الجيش العربي السوري إلى مدينة منبج وريفها لنشعر بالأمان ولا نرضى الاحتلال التركي ونشكر القوات الروسية الصديقة والجيش العربي السوري وما نشعر بالأمان لما يكون عدنا الجيش العربي السوري وهذا جيشنا أمننا وجيشنا عزنا وإحنا حاليا اتطمنا بدخول الجيش العربي السوري على أرزاقنا وعلى أولادنا وعلى نسائنا ولن نقبل بالاحتلال التركي ابدا ابدا والجيش العربي السوري لازم يدخل على كل منطقه بسوريا مشان اهل سوريا كلها تشعر بالامان انا من منبج هم الشهيد عبد So basically um, you know this is this is Syrian civilians in this area um, pledging their allegiance to the Syrian Arab army and declaring that, that, that they want the Syrian Arab army to take back control of these areas um, we mentioned last week um, President Assad's visit with his family to Aleppo, but we didn't manage to get into the importance of uh, this visit and bear in mind that it came just before the trilateral meeting. Now, during this visit, he visited uh, the thermal station and the opening of the fifth section, which will supply 200 megawatts to Aleppo city. 
that had been struggling from an electricity point of view. And also he visited the water pumping station at Tal Hassel to supply Aleppo continuously with water. Remember, I don't know if people remember, but pre-2016, uh, ISIS cut off supply of water, I think, initially, and then various terrorist groups also ensured that Aleppo city had no water. Um, and uh, this uh, pumping station will also pump water into the Quick River, which will irrigate all of the Aleppo um, agricultural lands. So this also sent an important message to Turkey and to the terrorist groups, because Aleppo is not far from the various embedded armed groups, most of them controlled by Turkey, but HTS to, to the West. Right. So the president coming for the first time in 11 years, not only to demonstrate the growth and the restoration of civilian infrastructure, but also to send a message to the armed groups that I'm here, I'm not moving, and we will take back every inch of Syria. Now, I mentioned that there are um, some cracks appearing, and this, I believe, is one of them. This is a report that was put out by the crisis group. Of course, the crisis group is heavily uh, linked to the State Department, to the intelligence agencies, and so on. So it's a, it's a reflection of what is going on in the deep state, in my opinion. And so in the last couple of days, it put out this report containing a resilient ISIS in Central and Northeastern Syria. Now, of course, I have to put a caveat there where they know perfectly well that they don't contain ISIS. They allow ISIS to flourish. The U.S. has been transporting them backwards and forwards from Syria to Iraq and allowing them to create havoc in both countries. But let's just read what it says as, as the kind of summary of the report. I'll, I'll summarize it. So the Islamic State self-declared caliphate. They basically say it came to an end um, with its defeat in the Syrian town of Bahuz near the Iraqi border. Of course, it doesn't mention who actually defeated ISIS there. But what is interesting for me um, of course, they big up their own involvement, but we know that to be, uh, you know, complete uh, disinformation. The U.S., as I've said a million times, is allowing ISIS to flourish um, and to collaborate with the U.S. and its other proxies, including the Kurds. Um, but for the first time, I'm pretty sure it includes, this report includes Damascus, okay, it says regime, it mentions the Russian and Iranian allies in the central Syrian desert known as the Badia. So, and it also mentions previously the PMU, um, the Popular Mobilization Unit, the, the so-called Iranian-backed militia in Iraq that has been responsible for the defeat of ISIS in Iraq. So it's an interesting uh, crack for me that they're starting to acknowledge the Syrian Arab army um, and the Iranian militia uh, role in defeating ISIS. And another crack. Yesterday, sanctions, EU sanctions, were removed on Sham Wings. Um, previously, it had been um, penalized for, in their view, uh, enabling the refugee crisis in Belarus by transporting uh, refugees to um, Minsk and then to the Polish border. Um, so those uh, sanctions have been lifted. Of course, Sham Wings is still under sanctions from the US for apparently ferrying Syrian Arab army and weapons around Syria when Syria was defending itself against the US-backed terrorists. Perfectly legitimate, but the US sanctioned them for it. 
And finally, I, I saw this come up on my feed uh, yesterday, and I thought it's, it's quite a fitting end to, to my little section. President of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, spoke about the confrontation between Russia and the West. They want to subjugate Russia and China. They are having a moment of schizophrenia, thinking that they still dominate the entire planet, and they do not understand that this is already in the past. And I think uh, very true words spoken at a very prescient time. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Vanessa. That was uh, fantastic. Now, Debbie, we'll uh, end with, with this. Um, drones and the Farnborough Air Show is about to begin. Uh, and, uh, well, drones are taking, uh, well, your headline here is what has Quasi Quarteng been droning, out about, droning on about Sorry, at Farnborough's Air Show? Yeah, well, actually, this, this segment um, specifically is going to be for everyone that lives in Milton Keynes, Oxford, Cambridge, Reading, Coventry, Rugby, Southampton and Bentwater. But this is going to come to the whole of the UK soon. So I've been looking at what the ministers have been doing while we've not been watching. And actually, the Farnborough Air Show was this week. And Quasi Kwatang, because Boris Johnson has been as well, which I know we'll talk about in extra, uh, so Quasi Kwatang has been to the Farnborough Air Show. And at the Farnborough Air Show, oh, and I must just remind people of Quasi Kwatang. His parents were from Ghana. His mum's a barrister. His father was an economist, is an economist for the Commonwealth Secretariat. He's a member of the Privy Council. He's Eton um, educated, Cambridge. He dated Amber Heard before marrying his current wife. He's written two very interesting books. Uh, well, he's written a number of interesting books, but one of them was called Gridlock Nation, seems to be what we're in now. And the other was called Britannia Unchained. So that's who Kwasi Kwarteng is. And he's currently the Minister um, for Business State, um, Secretary of State, Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. So I thought, let's have a look and see what he's doing. And he's investing 273 million pounds into the into this whole industry. So I thought I'd go and look at the government document and you'll see the government document is called Advanced Airborne Autonomy. So that's the document for everyone to go and look at. But what does this actually mean for us in real life? So actually the World Economic Forum, you know, they said to us, oh, we were not gonna have any privacy. Um, we're not gonna own anything and we're gonna be super happy. Uh, yes, probably they could be onto a thing here because as you'll see on your screen there, you've got um, some data. Now, you'll probably have to freeze the screen and then enlarge it. But basically, we're looking at drones could contribute 45 billion to the UK economy. We're going to have nearly a million drones in the sky, 900,000 to be precise. And they will be bringing humans, not just commercial goods. Um, apparently, they're going to protect our infrastructure, uh, so we'll be able to see all the faults on the lines and faults with our electricity network, etc. It's going to be for flood defences. It's all to do with levelling up, and, and we know that drones are going to be a thing of the future. So let's see how that's going to affect us, and who is going to, who's, whose idea is this? You know, who's dreamt up this, this whole idea? And we see that it's um, EE, British Telecom, and a, a company called Altitude Angel. And what they're doing, so if you're living in Reading, 
um, or Milton Keynes or Oxford or Coventry, courtesy of these, these, this conglomeration, you are going to get 165 miles of super drone highway over your houses. I mean, this is the biggest drone network in the world. <laughs> no one else is going to have this. I mean, it's completely and utterly insane. This is going to link cities through the Midlands. It's going to be um, two highways and they're going to be linked up to masts. So let's see who, who dreamt up this idea. Because when we go and have a look and see Altitude Angel, who are one of the companies that kind of came up with this whole idea, we'll see that it's a guy called Richard Parker. He had a kind of idea about helping save costs for the NHS and delivering medicines and delivering equipment, etc., to remote places. So he dreamt this up with a friend of his. And of course, his past is Microsoft. So you have to think to yourself, well, that's interesting. Have we got Bill Gates now? involved in the surveillance of these drones in the UK. But how's it going to help? How's it going to affect you? You know, and what is it going to be like looking up in the sky? Because this is going to be expanded through the whole of the UK. What's it going to be like looking up in the sky? So if we have a look at the actual drone highway, we can see that the UK are definitely taking a lead in this like big time. But what if they crash? What if the power goes out? What if the internet goes out so anybody that's directing it or, or controlling it hasn't got power? I mean, I'm absolutely flabbergasted because nobody seems to have realized. What about the airspace? Some of these drones are huge. They really are. And, and I know that I'm going to come to Vanessa in a minute because I know that she's got something to say about drones for sure. But just very quickly, because I know, Mike, you were talking about the uh, postal strike. And you've got to ask yourself, has this got anything to do with the reason that posties are getting a little bit upset? Because it seems, I mean, look at the size of these drones. They're huge. And um, I mean, some of them are going to contain humans in the near future as well. So what's going to happen? You can get somebody landing on your front lawn with your chemotherapy. I'd, I'd, I've got no idea. So we've got the postal workers using these massive drones to go to, to remote places. Got a personal drone. You've actually got, you're going to actually have your own personal drone and it's going to be called a Pixie. And it's going to be how you take a selfie. Can you imagine? Everyone is going to, I mean, all the youngsters are going to want, want one of these. It's like a tiny little um, yellow frisbee that you put in the palm of your hand and it can hover, it can travel, it can take videos of your friends and of you and on holiday. But let's not forget that Pixie was the uh, brainchild of Snapchat. And Pixie to me is, means a, a malevolent child. So I'm not quite sure that I'm, I'm into the meaning of the word. But uh, Vanessa, you've probably got more experience on drones where you are than I have. So what are your thoughts? <laughs> well, what is the noise level going to be? I mean, uh, these things aren't silent. I mean, I, you know, I lived in Gaza for, for some time. And honestly, it, it, it's one of the noises that drives you absolutely round the bend. Because it's like having a lawnmower above your head at various levels. And another thing is, generally speaking, when the drones came down low, they interfered with internet signals. So is everyone going to put up with their... With their Wi-Fi being 
uh, unstable because of these things. I mean, I'm sorry, but this just seems utterly insane. I just have this kind of vision of these wretched things, like a highway in the sky that they're not silent. These, these, even the small kind of um, uh, photography drones are not silent when when they come down lower, right? And and even at a, a kind of cruising height, you can still hear them. So imagine if there's hundreds of these bloody things or even thousands of them. I, just, well, I don't know. 900,000. <laughs> 900,000. And I have to say that I was outside about a year ago and I heard this bzzz. It was like, yeah. as you said, it was like a lawnmower. And I couldn't work out where it was coming from. I actually thought one of the power lines was going to explode. And I looked up and there was a drone. So, yes, they are. And that yeah. was just one. These are yeah. hundreds of thousands. But that's what I'm talking about. And it, and it really does your head in. Mm. I, I can safely say that, that that was the one thing, not the bombing, not the shelling, not the tanks, not the boats, but the drones that drove everyone crazy during the two weeks of Israeli bombing. So okay. people should be up in arms about that. <laughs> yes. Well, let's uh, let's see whether this report starts that at least starts people asking some significant questions. Thank you very much for that, Debbie. Right. Well, we're absolutely out of time. So thanks to Debbie. Thanks to Vanessa. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream uh, for a little bit of extra. Uh, and otherwise, we will see you all uh, again at 1 p.m. on Friday. Thanks very much for joining us today. We'll see you then. Bye bye.